don't talk too much. Just talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening. I am Eric John. And before we get into it, of course, I've got to tell you about the best artisan soda in the entire world. You have to go to yachtclubsoda.com right now and check it out. They've got some of the most amazing flavors you've ever seen in your life. They've got blue raspberry, lemon lime, uh, grapefruit. They've got a great uh, pale dry ginger ale. They've got uh, the, you know, the classic flavors like root beer and cola and cream. Uh, but this stuff's amazing. They use real raw cane sugar and uh, they, they come in these beautiful glass bottles and your, your fridge is going to look like a, a beautiful rainbow when you have all these different flavors uh, sitting in there. So go to YachtClubSoda.com today and order some for yourself. Okay, on the show today, uh, we've got a former uh, Libertarian Party candidate for president uh, from back in uh, 2016, Austin Peterson, on the show today. Um, very curious to talk to him about his evolution uh, in politics and his beliefs. Um, he has since turned uh, Republican, and uh, he's got a, a radio show of his own now, and um, always found him a very charismatic, uh, entertaining individual um, with some interesting thoughts on things. So I think it'll be a cool conversation. So without further ado, Austin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So um, you sort of famously left the Libertarian Party and joined the G GOP, and at the time you explained, uh, and correct me if I read this wrong, but that you know you asked your supporters uh what they thought you should do and they were pretty fairly unanimous in in feeling like you going with the gop was the smarter move politically and it made more sense um so i guess what i'm wondering is is now at, at this point all these years later um why are you still uh in the republican party as opposed to having gone back to the libertarian party well, don't forget that um, not only did I pull my supporters to ask them, you know, if I should run as a Republican for Senate, but some of the people uh, that were members of the Libertarian Party were glad to see me go and they were ushering me to the door as quickly as possible because, you know, I wasn't a real libertarian or libertarian enough for them. Um, and, you know, I, I guess in terms of why I consider myself to be a Republican today is because. Uh, you know, having spent more time working in local politics versus national politics ever since around 2015, a after my presidential campaign, I've done a lot on the state levels since Missouri. When I ran for Senate, you know, you you build these political uh, relationships with people in a, in a party. And I can see that my activism on the state level since my Senate campaign has really borne fruit, right? I've been able to be a part of campaigns that have actually, you know, have actually been successful. And, you know, he, when I when I work as an activist in the Republican Party, people take me seriously. And I'm able to work side by side with activists who are less concerned about the my bona fide, my libertarian bona fides than they are against defeating a certain tax proposal, if you will. Um, so, you know, I've been an activist and, and I spent 10 years in the Libertarian Party. I, I did everything from from you know, top to bottom. When I first started, I actually, in 2008, my first job in politics was working as the volunteer coordinator at the Libertarian National Committee in Washington, D.C. 
So I started out as the volunteer coordinator and then eventually, you know, 10 years later or so, I ended up as a presidential candidate and I did, you know, door knocking, you know, ballot access, you name it for, I did it for the Libertarian Party. Um, but I, what, what I've realized is since my time in the, in the GOP is that the same amount of activism goes much farther. And it's not to say that I I see, you know, there's anything wrong with the Libertarian Party. I mean, there are things wrong with the Libertarian Party, but in terms of, you know, why I left, they are, you know, there are plenty of good people there who are doing good things and they serve an important purpose in my mind. But for my time and for my energy, for the limited time and energy that I have, you know, it's sort of like making an investment. If you're going to invest in something and see a, perhaps a 1%, 2% return, it's much more attractive for you to make an investment in something where you're seeing 5, 10, sometimes 150, sometimes 200% returns on the same amount of energy and time and activism and money that you're spending. So that's a long way to sort of explain why I've decided to stay as a Republican, because I, I honestly feel as if, you know, there's no there's no minds that are being changed in the libertarian party uh not necessarily by the libertarian but within the libertarian party there's nothing to fight for really i mean everybody's already converted you're you're fighting over a sliver of a percentile of disagreement between people but within the republican party there are people who have serious disagreements with libertarian ideals and so i do much better as as a shepherd amongst the people who who want that I can lead to libertarian ideals because there's more fertile ground that, you know, it's perhaps unkind, but you know, the, the grounds, it's not fertile ground within the libertarian party for any sort of a growth because everyone is so rigid and confined to their own, um, their own small area within the party or their own ideological subset of libertarianism that there's, there's really no place to grow. Uh, and so w- if you want the opportunity to actually win hearts and minds, you know, I change Republicans minds on a daily basis about issues and, and I fight successfully for, for a cause uh, within the Republican Party. And I've, I see myself making ground and I make friends and relationships that help me to advance the cause. And at the end of the day, that's that's really important. So I think that's more important necessarily than than supporting a political party itself, because I think of myself as a philosophical libertarian first and then a Republican. You know, it's it, it's surprising to me to hear you say that people thought you weren't libertarian enough because <laughs> watching the, watch, you know, and the reason I say that is, is that uh, at least in the context of the 2016 nomination, I mean, you compared to Gary Johnson and Bill Weld. Um, I mean, it's to me, you're, you were way, way more you know, quote unquote, libertarian than they were. So I'm curious, uh, and this might have been around the time I started tuning out. So what changed? What what changed that where now people in the party felt like you weren't libertarian enough all of a sudden? Well, you know, there's always the anarchist wing of the party and they're always going to be uh, there, you know, m- me not being an anarchist. Right. Which if, if you're not an anarchist, then you're a statist. Right. So in the, in that context, in that scenario, if you are, you know, if you're not an anarchist and you're going to lose people. Right. So like John McAfee represented the sort of um, the zany um, Hunter S. Thompson wing of the Libertarian Party. And, you know, while I, you know, I have very liberal social beliefs, views in terms of like not left liberal, but as in like freedom liberal views right? tolerant views. 
uh, in regards to social issues, um, it's you're, it doesn't matter if, if, you know, there's tribalism exists within the Libertarian Party as much as anything. And I smelled like a Republican to them um, because I didn't smell like weed or, or alcohol or or, you know, cocaine or whatever drugs or sex or rock and roll they were into. Not that I judge them for it or think there's anything wrong with it. It's it's you know, it's perfectly fine for consenting adults to do as they please. And therein perhaps lies another bone of contention is the question of consenting adults. You might remember I was booed for saying that there should be laws against selling heroin to five-year-olds, but that comes out of that same part of the party that saw within me multiple heresies, not just in my belief in a limited government, but a government nonetheless, but also in my desire to protect the rights of children through the use of government, and also my questioning of basic uh, what, what some people consider to be an axiomatic principle, which I fundamentally reject, which is the non-aggression principle, as I see it as insufficient uh, for, uh, I see it as inf- insufficient uh, to explain libertarianism as also and also parasitic on a definition of fundamental property rights, because without a definition of property rights, what are you aggressing against? Who's committing aggression? I think that the non-aggression principle has largely been pioneered by, um, and I use this descriptively, not pejoratively, although sometimes I do uh, just use it pejoratively. But in this sense, uh, uh, I think that the non-aggression principle is, uh, the, is a sign of the influx of pacifism within the liberty movement. Uh, can you be a pacifist and be a libertarian? I think the answer to that is yes, but it is not a requirement, right? Because just because you decide to uh, be a pacifist and because you decide that you will not fight back, um, that's not my wing of of libertarianism. My libertarianism comes very much from the don't tread on me tradition, which means that if you violate my property rights or if you if you aggress upon me, I will fight back. You might be surprised to hear that some libertarians don't necessarily agree with that, and some libertarians may say, on one hand, that they that they that they think, oh yes, well yeah, it's justifiable self defense, but there are people who are committed pacifists in in the liberty movement, and that's perfectly fine, but don't force your pacifism on me in an ironic, you know, turn of the phrase, if you will. So I I think that because of that, because of my willingness to use what I believe to be a legitimate purpose of government, lawful self-defense, cops, courts, nukes, right? This this makes me anathema, right? And it's definitely made me a pariah from like, the, you might call it the Scott Horton wing of the, of the Libertarian Party, whose anti-war activism, I think, is well-intentioned, but it really retards their growth. And it also, I think, is ultimately retarded because it it does not allow for a true form of self-defense. And I think that part, a large part of the reason why libertarians are so often trounced, um, he said ironically since I lost my elections, but a large reason why we are frequently trounced is because of not just of our, our, um, our lack of will to fight back against those who are aggressing us because of some non-aggression principle and, and which is so uh, ambiguous but also our lack of understanding in how to fight or the nature of war itself, which I think many libertarians are fundamentally ignorant on. You know, it's so serendipitous that you bring up pacifism. Um, so I, me personally, I'm, um, 
I'm not sure about the non-aggression principle. I'm I'm kind of like I like I I actually feel like I sympathize with your take a lot. I feel like my my adherence to the non-aggression principle is almost almost entirely. I feel like for me has to do with me being a Quaker and has almost nothing to do with me being a libertarian. Um, and I, I talked to Karen Ann Harlos about this too on the podcast about pacifism, and uh, I'm actually really quite shocked to to hear that. Um, that any libertarian would argue that pacifism is a libertarian uh, notion. I, I've never thought that. Um, uh, in fact, I've always said that, you know, um, the, one of the reasons I don't think gun laws should exist is because I don't want to force my pacifism on someone else. You, like, I don't want to use the government to, to enforce my pacifism on other people. That seems completely ass backwards. Um and so that that does kind of shock me quite a bit. Um, do you think that, um, you know, you mentioned uh, the sort of zany, wild, wacky, anar- anarchist element of the party uh, in referring to John McAfee uh, types and, and things like that. Do you think that the, the Mises caucus takeover of the party has sort of taken the anarchist wing of the party in a, a little bit more of a serious direction in, in a more Rothbardian sort of um, Hoppian uh, sort of direction, as opposed to the sort of like wild and crazy drug sex, drugs and rock and roll type anarchists um, that, that might've existed in the past. Yeah, I think so to a certain extent. I mean, I think if, if you know, under the, you know, as the party currently is stands today, I think that, you know, if I were to run for the nomination of the libertarian party, in, in this current election, I think I'd probably have a much better chance of, of actually winning. I think that in some sense, what you're saying is correct, that I think that the party, it, it's brought anarchists more into activist mode. But the, uh, the larger problem, I think, is just that the activism is it's within the party itself, right? It's not, it's not actually going outside of its own sphere and evangelizing outside of its own circles, right? It's, it's very, it, it's rather inbred, if you will, right? It doesn't have uh, a, a public face that is sort of, I, I guess you will, the, the, it doesn't have a kind of a, a, a strong public face, if you will, I mean, that's the kind of thing. And again, there's, there's n- not everybody has to play nice, right? And not some, some people aren't going to play nice. And, and f- it, that it, there's a time for us to do activism that, that gets under people's skin. And, and the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire, I think, exemplifies that. I don't always agree with their tactics, but you know, they're more brawlers. And certainly I think I, I, I'm like that as well, you know, with, you know, sort of like, um, you know, there's there's a juxtaposition there because I have, you know, more of a, a smiley, happy, upbeat, positive face. But I also have, you know, I can have a mean streak to me as well. And uh, yeah, I think you need both approaches in this world. But I, I, I can't say too much about the internal workings of the Libertarian Party since I'm not a member anymore. So I can't really comment just on how well the Mises Caucus has, has um, brought the anarchists into a better uh, form of activism. I really couldn't speak to that because... I have not been a member since 2017, and a lot has changed since then. And so I hear a lot of rumors and hearsay about this or that or what, what the party is doing or this or there, but I, I really don't pay a lot of attention to them anymore, to be quite honest, just because I'm focused on other things. Well, let's talk about those other things. Um, so you mentioned um, working a lot on the state level and the local level, and I, I think that's fantastic. What are some of the 
uh, issues that you um, feel strong, like most strongly about right now? Like, what are you really energized about? Well, so despite the fact that I believe in in tolerance and a, a you know a an open, I have an open mind when it comes to the relationships that adults share as consenting adults. I do think it is important for libertarians to engage in the cultural uh, wars and to fight back against wokeism, which I see as a form of cultural Marxism, which is a legitimate branch of Marxism. And, uh, you know, I know many left libertarians will disagree with me and will say that, no, we don't need to be engaged in the culture wars. It has nothing to do with government. But I do believe that government is downstream, politics is downstream of culture. And that while we while we do want to advocate for the rights of consenting adults, uh, two things could be true at one time. One, that some people who are adults who engage in um, lifestyles with a high time preference, um, those people are fine and good and well as adults. But some of those people who are adults with high time preference, time preferences, desire to take their their lifestyles and impose them on those who cannot consent, namely minors. Uh, and when you deal with a situation where there is a dedicated um, uh, overt assault on the liberty of young people, my fear is that if we as libertarians do not put st stand athwart the uh, the woke left and the young people, who are being not only indoctrinated in public schools, but actually physically assaulted by adults with mental illnesses and with a, a, a with ideologies that run counter to a belief in a natural right of an individual, so much so that they uh, that they violate the rights and the bodily integrity of those children, then we will we will inadvertently lead to the rise of authoritarianism because you cannot uh, engage in the type of behavior that the left engages in without every, with every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And with the left having gone and swung so, so hard in, into a position of cultural Marxism and wokeism with their desire to to have access, sexual access to minors and children, and to fundamentally alter the genitals of minors and children, of those who cannot give their consent, then, then if we do not pitch in with conservatives and fight to protect the rights and the liberties of minors, then the darker elements on the right, the uh, the those who do not believe in individualism, the collectivists of the right, will be granted more power, more authority, and and they, they certainly are right. These the extreme uh, 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 radicalist groups of the Patriot Fronts and and the, the the National Socialists that we see on the march in Florida, those people will be given more credence and more of an ear when people fear that the left when the left go is pervasively stunningly uh, attacking the rights of minorities and and that is that is that can be avoided i believe if libertarians can put by like bygones be bygones agree that we agree to disagree on certain issues with conservatives but that we present an absolute and united front against the left's desire to normalize pedophilia and to gain access to our children uh, through the education system and through other 
means, other various means. We That is, to me, one of the biggest, most important things we can do to prevent the rise of fascism in the United States. Well, what would you say to the libertarian who might say, look, you know, I, I don't really care anymore about you know, what's going on in the public schools. I don't have to send my kid to a private school where where maybe they're teaching things that I don't agree with. I'm going to stay over here. I'm going to homeschool my kids. I'm going to do my thing. I'm not going to engage. Um, you know, w- what would you say to that sort of libertarian? Well, can you, uh, listen, that, that's, that's, that's part of liberty. Every, nobody, people don't have to engage. And that, I mean, I'm not a nihilist, you know, so I, I can't just sit back and think it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. I'm not black pilled, if you will. Right. I'm very much I believe in an optim- optimistic future. But I know that uh, that the, an optimistic future has to be coupled with the activism that's going to make that necessary. So, you know, I, for them, the, the, the true answer to what you're saying is, is I would leave them alone because they desire to be left alone. And I believe in that. Um, if they want, if they want to engage with me and have a conversation with me, or if I could try and convince them to, to act up, I would say, Hey, listen, just remember, you know, we, if, if you have children or if you want to have children, or if you want to see a future for humanity, then it's, it's, a, it's upon us, you know, evil is always on the march and good, good is always on the defense because, you know, in order for goodness to be able to win victories, typically it's because we're fighting back, playing a defensive strategy. But at some point in time, the good guys have got to get up, go out there, and have got to mount some campaigns and clean up, clean up the colonies, <laughs> if you will, in order for us to have a secure and fu- secure future. I mean, some people think that the future will take care of itself, and you know, maybe they're right. You know, maybe I'm wrong. I'm willing to concede that I don't know everything and that I could absolutely be incorrect about many things. And I've changed my minds about things in the past, so I know I've been wrong. Um, but uh, I, I guess I, I don't identify with a view of the future that things are hopeless, that they can't be changed. I don't buy into it. And I also think it's very uh, arrogant of black-pilled, you know, collapsitarians. I think it's very arrogant of them to assume that it's hopeless or that things can't be changed for the better. Because if you look at things on a long enough timeline, then you will see that the long march towards history bends towards liberty. But it only is that way for for the reason that some people got off, off their asses and got out there and fought for it. Liberty will never be given. It must always be taken. You know, you mentioned uh, the idea of good and evil, and of course, whenever I think of good and evil, I, I think of war. Um, and you mentioned, you know, the the sort of Scott Horton wing of the of the of the libertarian movement, and uh, of course, as a Quaker, I'm, I'm entirely anti-war. Um, but having said that, one of the things I think I I really appreciated about Ron Paul was that he was really clear about the fact that. Um, he was really. Uh, he, he thought it was really important to have a strong defense, and because um, you know, this was something he was attacked about um, and attacked for all the time, was that he was weak on defense. And I, I thought he always had like the greatest answers. Like he would say, "No, I want to close all the bases overseas, and I want to build more bases here at home, and you know, and protect our ports, and do all this thing, and all these things." And I, I always thought that was such a great appeal to, to people who who desire security. Again, I, me not wanting to force my pacifism on other people. I, I just always thought it was brilliant. Um, 
So I'm, I'm curious, um, what, what is your sort of general feeling about the matter of war and peace? And then more specifically uh, about what's going on in, in the Ukraine right now. And what do you think we should or shouldn't be doing about it? Oh, boy, that's a good question. So there's a lot of big questions there. And some of them are only tangentially related, but I'll try and string together a good response if I can. Um, you know, I've got a, a great respect for the depth and magnitude of the research that Scott Horton does. But I think that his fatal flaw is that he very much exists in the bubble that many anarchists do, which is to say that they would like to place their ideals and beliefs on top of a history uh, and a world that exists now uh, that doesn't exist in the sense that we all one of the one of the fatal conceits of the woke left is that they have what is called a moral time machine is what I like to say, or there, there's a word for a term for it. I can't remember what it is, but um, it, it's when you look back on history and you judge yourself as morally perfect because you know exactly what you would have done underneath this scenario. And this is what was the correct decision. And that is what is the incorrect decision. And this is the moral decision. And that was the immoral decision. And I think that unfortunately, the the anarchists uh, the pacifist anarchists and these, you know, or the Scott Horton wing, they they make the same mistakes that the woke left makes in tra time traveling in their moral time machine and placing their morals and claiming themselves to be morally superior over those who actually ha are in the arena and have the and have to deal with the consequences of these life and death decisions. Uh, notably, I think. Uh, of which I, I think I rankled Scott Horton the most of my position in regards to the use of nuclear weapons at the end of World War II on Japanese. And what I find fascinating is, is that, you know, I've, I've, I've done many public debates and I interview many libertarians on my, my talk show program that I do. And um, I speak to to all of them about the, the concepts of war and peace. Judge Napolitano, my good friend, he comes in my show every Wednesday and I and I really grill him about things like this and boy boy if you if you sit let me sit down with any libertarian for 15 minutes and I'll show you I'll show you a statist in you know in 15 to 20 minutes flat because when you take a look at a at a the kind of a decision that uh that was that had to be made in regards to the use of a nuclear weapon you, when you look back, it's quite easy with your rearview mirror to look back in uh, at a decision like that and say, well, it was completely immoral because of such and such and such and such reasons. Well, yes, it is if you also completely ignore all of the other factors for the reasons for why they decided to do it, as well as such and such and such and such and such. And such. We all do this. We all, uh, we all tend to, um, to, uh, focus on the hits and ignore the misses. We all are guilty of confirmation bias, but none more so than the most sincere or strict of the ideologues because they are convinced that they have the truth and they have the light. And it's very much a sort of religious mindset. They have faith in libertarian principles. I don't have faith in libertarian principles, but I don't have faith in anything. I only see things very much from a Randian perspective of, of, of an objective view of things. 
And so, uh, unfortunately, since we don't have a moral time machine, we can't go back and tell them, oh, this is how we live. And first of all, how dare, can I curse on this stream? Go for it. How fucking dare you go back to 1945? Why don't you go and tell them with their boys who are dying and missing every single day uh, on the beaches of Saipan and in uh, at, at the, on the island of Peleliu or of Guadalcanal? How fucking dare you tell them that oh these this is immoral and unjustified and that they that they would have had to send more of their boys to die in the in the Bataan Death March and send more to die in Japanese prison camps and also all of the Japanese civilians who were going to die from a land invasion at that time and they don't you know you they don't know how much how longer Japan is going to be willing to fight oh well FDR knew and he wanted to get us into war or. Truman was just bloodthirsty. Want to do all this? If you sure, if you ascribe the absolute worst motives to absolutely everyone that you claim to despise uh, in every scenario, then yeah, exactly. And and also, it's like with Sam Harris when it comes to COVID nineteen. Every interview we see of him now today, he just digs himself deeper and deeper. He's like, well, if everything about COVID nineteen was completely different, well, then I would have been right. Well, okay, yeah, but. Things weren't the way that you say that they were, Sam Harris, so you're completely wrong. And so that is my problem with the the Horton wing of the party, is that it places a moral judgment. And also, I think it, it does venture into the realm of simping for dictators. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, if you see many of the people surrounding um, uh, Congressman Ron Paul and his Foreign Policy Institute, you will see them simping for Vladimir Putin. It, it is, it's not uncommon now at an anti-war rally to see people waving rough Russian flags and openly praising Vladimir Putin. These are, these are our foreign policy non-interventionist libertarians, and yet they seem to have picked a side when it comes to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And part of that has to do with, again, that cultural tribalism, they identify with Christian nationalism, uh, and they don't identify with um, Jewish liberal democracy uh, such as it is in Ukraine. Uh, now, I'll leave one to decide when it comes to the conflict between Russia or Ukraine. I don't think that the United States should be involved in regards to that conflict. I don't side with Russia. Frankly, I don't think that they should have invaded. I think that their invasion is just as immoral and uh, and unjustified and unlawful as the invasions that uh, as the invasion of Iraq by George W. Bush. But you don't hear the Horton wing of the party saying things like that, right? You don't hear them. You say it is so, I, that's why I've become, as in my older years, as I've studied more and more, I've become a little more cynical of the anti-war movement because I think that one, that many of those people are useful idiots for foreign regimes. And I actually think that many of them are probably on the payroll of foreign regimes because as, a, as I've uncovered over the years, more and more, uh, foreign intelligence agencies you know, the United States government and the CIA and the FBI and the NSA, they're not the only evil governments that operate in uh, the, the cloak and dagger method, right? There, you know, China, Russia, uh, uh, Iran, uh, Syria, Lebanon, like they all have their own, uh, you know, versions of the deep state, if you will, and their states go even deeper, right, as the, the fundamentalist theocracy of Iran. So, so what I've learned over the years is that many of these anti-war people, again, many of them are well-meaning. Some of them are absolutely dead set correct, and I absolutely agree with them, and we need to have 
a less uh, interventionist foreign policy. I absolutely agree with that. But then some of them are useful idiots. Some of them are simping for dictators. And I think that there are probably elements within the anti-war movement here in the United States that are official state actors for foreign governments. Um, and some of them are probably names and faces of people that you know. And probably you would be very disappointed uh, if you were to find those things out. And if that those links could be verifiably proved, you know, it, it would take a real serious investigative journalism to do it. And certainly those I, I think those people are traitors. But they see it as in in their own either their financial interests or they see it as in their in ideological interests because oh I don't know because Vladimir Putin is an Orthodox Christian fighting against again Jewish liberal democracy which is decadent and has led to transgenderism and feminism. Austin, you are you uh, you don't hold back. Uh, you're always entertaining. Um, you're you're you know you're always very thoughtful as well. I, I you know I, I know that you think very deeply about all of these things. And um, just full disclosure for for anyone listening, I, I am a huge fan of Scott Horton. Um, I love his work. Um, and uh, and I you know and I know you've also acknowledged that there's lots of things you appreciate appreciate about Scott as well. But you you disagree with a lot of the stuff that he says. I'll tell you, I'd love to see a debate with you and Scott Horton. I think that would be interesting. I think it would be entertaining. Um, you know, and, and I think you make some some interesting points that I think are worthy of a response, and I think are worthy of of further thought. You know, even coming from this you know, Quaker, libertarian, pacifist, um, you know, I, I love thinking about all this stuff. I, I always try to assume maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe, you know, there's, there's a chance maybe I'm missing something. Um, and so uh, I think that would be really interesting. Uh, I'm not sure it'll ever happen, but um, it's certainly something I would love to see. Um, Austin, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, really fun to talk to you. Uh, please let people know about where they can find you. I know you have a radio show you're doing. Uh, you mentioned that uh, with your weekly conversations that you also have with Judge Napolitano. So uh, just let everybody listening know uh, everything they possibly can about where to find you. Yeah, so obviously I'm AP for Liberty everywhere. So AP, the number four. AP for Liberty on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all over the place. And then I would say that um, if you want to watch my show, it's live every Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Uh, Central Time. Uh, at the, You can find the Wake Up America Show website, but the best place to watch the show, in my opinion, is at rumble.com slash AP for Liberty. So watch the Wake Up America Show, rumble.com slash AP for Liberty. Uh, check us out 7 to 9 a.m. Central Time, and I hope to see some of your friends there. Thanks, Austin. I hope to talk to you soon. You too. Bye. This is the Just Listening Podcast. I gotta go. Go where? Maybe we just got it. I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.